welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 39. Great guest this week. I'm excited to speak with him. I do feel like I say that every week, but you know, I mean, I am excited about these guests. Um, Had a little bit of a scheduling issue last week, so we missed the episode last week. Apologies for that, but we're back and I'm going to try to get like three or four in the can in the next couple of days, so we should have them out every Monday for the next few weeks. Um, now, counterpunch, I think, is very important these days in particular. You look at the Bernie Sanders issue. You look at climate change. You look at a number of uh, issues about imperialism, Libya, Syria, Ukraine, what have you. All of these various subjects, um, maybe with the exception of climate change, but are relatively, um, I think, uh, divisive in some ways. Divisive in particular because a lot of alternative media on the left, I think, drops the ball on some key issues. Libya in 2011, in my view, is a perfect example of that. And yet Counterpunch, in many ways, I think kind of stands alone in the sense of not only does it uh, take the what I would consider the correct position, but it allows a space for debate, for discussion, for dialogue, for discourse, for other words that start with the letter D. Um, And I think that Counterpunch is important for that reason. We don't have a lot of spaces online or anywhere, really, where we can do that anymore. And so I urge people, I recommend and I urge simultaneously, in fact, that they get a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great magazine. I love having it. I love getting it in the mailbox. I I try not to blow through it in, you know, in a day or in a week. I, I try to savor it as much as possible. I love the artwork. A lot of hard work goes into it. Um, the, the the staff over at Counterpunch, they do such a great job putting it together. It's a great way to support the Counterpunch project. I recommend you get that subscription. Um, also, of course, Counterpunch Radio. Give us a positive review on iTunes. Send us around to your friends. Recommend us in whatever platforms you can, whatever way you can. Uh, help spread the word about the show. Um, this is something that we do kind of as a, as a public service, kind of as a way to bring Counterpunch to more people, to bring it onto your phone when you're exercising, riding on the train, what have you. So uh, do us a favor. If you like the show, help spread the word. Positive reviews on iTunes are probably the best way to do that. Anyway, all of that promotion out of the way, let me turn to my guest this week. I'm very happy to introduce Eugene Perrier to the show. Uh, Eugene is the vice presidential candidate for the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL. Uh, he is a well-known, well-respected activist and organizer. Uh, he's been recently profiled even in the mainstream media, so let's uh, let's deride him for that. Uh, let's follow him on Twitter, at Eugene Perrier. Uh, spell just how it sounds. Uh, Eugene Perrier, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Hey, Eric, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. Thank you. And um, we were having a little bit of a Skype difficulty before we uh, were able to begin this conversation. So I'm going to chalk that up to capitalism and to the forces of capital trying to prevent you know, us from having... I absolutely will because, you know, my internet is Verizon. Oh, and, there you uh, go. Yeah. I wonder if perhaps, you know, they're just trying to cut us out just in case we're going to... I might say something positive about the strike. Who knows? Well, there you go. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we're not going to call you a scab. 
because I know you don't. I know you don't have a choice because of how the monopoly works. But um, anyway, Eugene, let's uh, let's let's talk here. You are on the presidential vice presidential ticket for PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. I wanted to have you on to talk about a number of issues and we'll have time to go into your platform, what your party is really advocating, what it is you guys are trying to achieve. But let's start with, I think, one of the major issues that has come out of this presidential election cycle or selection, depending on who you ask. And um, that, of course, for our purposes here at Counterpunch, the, the, the main issue that we're really interested in to a large extent is Bernie Sanders, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and what this really means in the broader uh, spectrum of U.S. politics. So let's start with this word socialism. You know, a lot of people make the argument that the Sanders campaign, if for no other reason, is valuable because it, uh, you know, destigmatizes the word socialism. It brings it back into, into the political discourse. So talk a little bit about that. Do you agree? Agree with that sentiment? Do you maybe have some caveats to that? What's your take on Sanders and the normalization of socialism? Well, I, I think that there's two pieces. I think that, yes, in general, it is true. I, I think that for sure there was already some destigmatization going on, uh, allegedly, if you agree to the polls, primarily amongst millennials, but I guess we'll see how that shakes out. But nevertheless, I think a lot of what we had seen in terms of really post-Occupy movement, a lot of polling showing that people were not only interested in more radical ideas, but seemed to be having a growing uh, interest in this idea of socialism. And I think that what the Sanders campaign is, more than anything else, is a mainstreaming of that fact that was flying a little bit under the under the radar. It was the first sort of a, the quote-unquote official recognition of the fact that a lot of left-leaning, socialist-oriented or explicitly socialist views that were existing within the broad sections of the population, that this wasn't just, you know, a blip on the radar or some sort of accident of polling or the way they asked the question, but that, in fact, this was the case. And I think that the, the only caveat I would add in there is, and maybe it isn't even really a caveat, because I do think, you know, in the most anti-communist country on the planet, uh, where it's almost an official religion, we don't want to underplay how important it is just to have socialism of any type in the discourse and not being completely and totally. I mean, it's interesting for people to note, because a lot of people have drawn parallels between this and Jesse Jackson's campaign, that even though, you know, in a lot of ways, Jackson's campaign, especially on, you know, foreign policy issues, if you want to call it that, uh, was more progressive, it still steered 100% away from any sort of official identification of socialists. So uh, I think that speaks to a number of things, but it shows how important, I think, just having that term in the discourse in a way that's serious uh, will be for for socialists and and revolutionaries going forward. But the caveat, I think, is, you know, what is the definition of socialism? And obviously around the world, this is something that has been and continues to be contentious. I don't know if there's just one answer to that, but I do think that, and we can get more into this, a lot of what Sanders is saying is not necessarily socialistic as much as it's New Dealistic, New Dealistic, uh, if that's a word, if I can invent that. Uh, And so what it means and what it means for the political content of the discourse going forward, I think isn't, you know, we don't fully know that yet. Yeah, and that really, I think you're really hitting at it and you articulated it very well. That is one of the key 
criticisms that, that, that I have and that a lot of other people have, you know, these quote-unquote uh, purists on the left, you know, purist socialists, right, who, who uh, really do take issue with this notion that Bernie Sanders, who caucuses with the Democrats, who, though he is, for all intents and purposes, you know, an independent uh, in, in the Senate, he is, in fact, really a, a Democrat in terms of his policies, in terms of where he's aligned on key issues and key votes in his career. And then when you throw in the term socialist, particularly among the the young people who have just entered into the political arena around this Sanders campaign, I fear, and a lot of us have, have, have articulated this point, that Sanders is diluting, if not polluting, what socialism means. And is there the potential to lose this, um, you know, this vibrant base of this new generation to socialism uh, and, and having them essentially folded back in to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Yeah, I think it, it is a fear, um, and I think it's something that we should be worried about and that we should be concerned about. And to some degree, that's sort of why in our campaign we've been, while saying positive things about what we think Bernie is doing and, and even more than that, positive things about the people who are, who are getting behind him, you know, we've actually wanted to run a campaign to put these issues out there, in some cases, into the mainstream, but in the most general sense. Uh, amongst people who are looking at this, whether it's online and candidate forums, talking to people on the street, whatever it is, to try to interject some understanding about what we believe, uh, you know, real socialism is, you know, revolutionary socialism. That is socialism that replaces capitalism, a system with a new system, and that we can get that out there because I think that's really the key is in some degree there's only but so much we can do to control it. I mean, certainly the Democrats are always trying to co-opt. I mean, you know, I remember the anti-war movement, for instance, where certainly, and some people will say this, well, Democrats spoke from certain platforms. Well, yeah, sure. But there were plenty of people out there waving the red flag and many other sorts of ideologies at those demonstrations that were often quite well received by the crowd. Nevertheless, in 2006 and 2008, the Democrats were able to channel that energy. But I do think that what we do can make a difference. And I think that now more than ever, and this is the situation I want to make, uh, the parallel I want to make, the situation objectively is not actually the same because of the broader instability in the system. I mean, I think that this is the first year in some time, certainly my whole lifetime, and I'm 30, where in a very serious sense, we're talking about one of the two major parties potentially collapsing or splitting or splintering into, you know, who knows how many different pieces. You've heard people raise issues of, well, third can quote unquote third party candidates potentially win one or two states and all these different sorts of issues that point to the fact that the broader crisis that's facing the imperialist system has really hit the home front here and the contradictions have started to fall in. So I think the question is, uh, you know, not so much are the Democrats going to gain something from this. I think the reality is, without a doubt, the quote unquote progressive wing of the Democratic Party is absolutely going to get some momentum coming out of this. I think there'll be a couple uh, more senators who are a couple ticks to the left that should take the Senate caucus a little bit more in a progressive uh, direction. I think the real question is, is there going to be something more like a left-wing version of the Tea Party where the increased demands from the, again, I'll say quote-unquote progressive wing, there's so many caveats there, uh, many of them are progressive in some ways, but uh, is that going to create some sort of instability inside of the Democrats, and is that something that uh, we'll be able to capitalize on as, you know, 
real left, I guess, if you want to call it that, which I think has clearly and very scarily been the case on the right, where we've seen that the instability inside of the major party, the Republicans, has actually given an unbelievable boost to all sorts of just completely execrable far-right ideologies, even kind of created some new ones like alt-right. So I think the question is, is can there be some sort of dynamic interplay over the course of this process between those who, who both reject the Democrats' in an ideological sense, but also just from a realistic sense, because we've seen that it really is the graveyard for progressive social movements and those who still feel like the tactic isn't fully exhausted. Is there some dynamic interplay that can lead to some sort of bursting forth uh, in a serious way? I think it's one thing to say break with the Democrats every day, which many of us do, and it's another thing to see it happen. And I think we're seeing the potential for it to happen here. The question just is, will we be able to find a way to capitalize as a socialist movement uh, writ large? Yeah, absolutely. It's I agree with you. And I want to come back to that question of a uh, socialist movement, because I think that that in and of itself is an important topic to discuss. But let's focus on some of the uh, key um, uh, battlefronts, if we can call them that, in which the socialist um, wing of the left is not only actively in the forefront, but I think in many ways has... Um, forced a conversation into the into the broader political dialogue. So where do you see socialists, and not just socialists, of course, we, we don't want to be totally exclusionary. There are plenty of groups that would not necessarily identify as socialists, whether they are, you know, progressives on the of, of the democratic stripe, whether they are organized labor, whether they are anarchists or what have you. There are many different groups that are involved in things like Black Lives Matter, in things like the fight for 15. But let's talk a little bit about where you see the socialist movement really having an impact on the ground, because I agree with you, of course, that while there may be some instability in the in, in the, uh, you know, in the dominant political system, ultimately, this election is going to come down to yet again, a choice between evil and evil. And yet again, we're going to end up with evil as the president, no matter who that may be. But on the ground, we are seeing some changes. So talk a little bit about where socialism is really at the forefront. Well, I think socialism is in, in so many ways and often in unseen ways uh, deeply involved in a lot of the social movements you just mentioned. I mean, I think the first and foremost one that jumps out to me is the fight for 15. I mean, I think that beyond, you know, who's behind whatever the election of Shama Sawant into the Seattle City Council as the first socialist candidate in however many years in the United States to get onto some sort of city council and really behind that fight for 15, and not only behind fight for 15, but the point of $15 an hour and doing it right now, which I think is absolutely key, uh, was something that just exploded onto the stage in a way that I think gave a huge, huge, huge boost to that fight, which is, you know, it seems like kind of a small thing, one person or one sort of small group of people in one city, but I think you can see how big sometimes that impact can be. And I would say that has obviously been huge beyond, of course, the fact that many people on the ground who are working around Fight for 15 certainly self-identify as socialist or some kind of radical. But in a most general sense, that's the one that jumps out at me because of that. I think that in the Black Lives Matter struggle, for sure, there has been influence of socialist in, in many different places. I mean, certainly myself, I've always been someone who's, who's self-identified as a socialist and, and here in Washington been able to be prominent. But even looking at the gatherings that have happened, I mean, there's really been two 
main large gatherings so far, sort of open to the public is what I should say, uh, around the, what people are calling the movement for black lives. One was the movement for black lives convening in Cleveland, but secondarily, earlier this year, there was the Black Radical Tradition Conference in Philadelphia, which was about 2,000 people, mostly young, almost all people working on the ground, not just on quote-unquote Black Lives Matter issues, many people across some, but that was sort of the energy that brought people into the room. It was about 75% black folks in there. Uh, and I think that that conference, by its very name, Black Radical Tradition, gives you a sense of what the content was, but the opening presentation, which featured Cornel West and, and Tony Montero and was shared by my friend Kashara White, who's also a member of the PSL in Philadelphia, uh, and she gave sort of a speech as well as chairing. And that was titled, I'm trying to remember the exact title, but something like uh, The Socialist Imperative for the 21st, something like that. It was basically about the centrality of socialism, the moving, the struggle around Black Lives Matter, but just in general against oppression and exploitation uh, forward. And the whole weekend, and this is thousands of people now, uh, the whole conversation was centering around how do we talk about issues of socialism, radicalism, how do we can, you know, what are, how do we connecting with other ideas that are out there? What is the connection between the black liberation movement and the struggle against the capitalist ruling class, the struggle for socialism? I mean, and real discussions around these questions, not just a bunch of platitudes and, and speeches. And if you go to blackradicaltradition.org, or maybe it's theblackradicaltradition.org, people can actually see all of the speeches there. And talks and discussions that went forward, which were all taped by a collective of, of young folks in Philadelphia. So I think that what we're seeing, and I should mention at that conference as well, uh, I was able to meet Christian Bailey Davis, for instance, who was the individual who brought together the Blacks in Solidarity with Palestine letters. So I think what we can see is that a lot of the youth energy around, you know, you mentioned climate justice issues earlier. I mean, you know, without a doubt. Certainly, uh, the Naomi Klein book revealed the fact, I think, that there are many, many, many thousands of people in that movement who previously didn't have a strong connection with the socialist movement who are now questioning the issues of capitalism. So I think we don't always see it uh, in the most explicit sense, but on the ground in many of these movements that people are sort of looking to as something of an avatar for the broad upsurge uh, of progressive left-wing ideas amongst, I guess, in the media discourse, millennials, but I think amongst many people, are really being driven on the ground every day by people either who are explicitly socialists, communists, anarchists, or people who at the very least are trying to pay close attention to these ideas and figure out where their own struggle over an issue or a set of issues fits into a broader ideology, which I think is equally as important because it shows it's not just a handful of us out here you know, talking and shouting, but that really we're, we're engaged in a, in, a, in a long and a deep dialogue with people who are kind of all over the map politically, but are interested in trying to figure out a way to come up with some sort of plan so we can actually win on these issues and not just talk about them. Yeah, that's right. And and that last point you made, I think, Eugene, is really the key, at least for me, um, because basically, you know, first of all, I'm not one of these people who will always endlessly say that, you know, uh, anything, anything surrounding identity politics is destructive. We need to get away from identity politics, whatever. I don't really buy that argument entirely because I think that the questions of identity, quote unquote, whether that has to do with race 
racial issues, whether that has to do with LGBTQ issues or what have you. I think that they are important. Obviously, I don't really I don't really buy into what I guess you could call totalitarian identity politics, where that's the central <laughs> and sole focus of a movement. But the reason I say that is because something like Black Lives Matter uh, in my view, one of the drawbacks has been this inability, uh, maybe inability is a strong word, but this uh, uh, sort of tendency to not connect it to broader social and economic issues. For instance, Black Lives Matter as a movement specifically about, you know, uh, 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 police brutality and police murder against black people. Obviously, it is important. Obviously, that is a central concern. But Connecting that to the military-industrial complex, to the police state, connecting that to how these large corporations fund these local police departments, how they provide them with their weapons, who does the training for these cops, how is that connected to imperialism in the Middle East with Israel and so forth? There's a lot of other issues that are uh, connected, almost like you know the spokes of a wheel, to this just this one movement or just this one issue of black lives and and the movement for black lives and that's really making those connections is really where i see the sort of uh, where the rubber meets the road as far as you know socialism and socialist activists being able to do that but let's not focus solely on black lives matter fight for 15 is is also an example of that where yes of course the 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 fight is all about you know pushing the minimum wage to a level that is livable for working people. But at the same time, it's not solely about that. It's about wealth inequality. It's about unequal distribution in a capitalist system. It is about CEOs and the ruling class and organized labor and who controls organized labor and how do you fight back against the bosses of unions that are in bed with the political establishment. All of these issues surround the fight for 15. And that, again, that's where I see socialists really making it impact and bringing ideology to the table that can actually affect those issues. Yeah, I think you are 1000% right. I mean, I think that's, it's very easy to create sort of a superficial, I mean, maybe superficial isn't the word, but sort of a surface level unity around a lot of these like issue based campaigns. I mean, you could say to some degree, I mean, even Hillary Clinton has done that to some it, to, in some way. I mean, just about everyone who's voting for her is for a $15 an hour minimum wage, and she's for it where it can pass. So, I mean, you see how you can bring together sort of a Black Lives Matter sensibility, Fight for 15 sensibility, you know, environmental, you know, awareness sensibility on sort of a surface level issue. Really easy, and Hillary Clinton is not the greatest example. But the point I'm making is that, you know, you can bring together the, the, the individual issue, issues in a silo at a surface level pretty easily. The real question is, and this is what I think you were alluding to, is what is it really going to take to solve these problems and to approach these problems? And then when you start to look more deeply into not only the interests that are at stake, but the interlinking reality, and this is what I always try to point out to people, the interlinking reality of the people who are doing it. I mean, if you really look, one, of course, in the Congress in general, and the lawmakers and the legislatures and the front people for the imperialist system, obviously, it's kind of the same people dealing with all of these issues. The, the point I always make to people is like in that movie Selma, when there's the scene between King and Johnson, and Johnson saying to King, well, you have one big issue, I got a 100 big issues. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting commentary on how really 
you're looking at it as like, well, there's climate here and wages here and yeah. gentrification here and racism here, but really it's the same people. But even the people who sit beyond, behind the, the, the politicians, more profoundly, those people are the same people. And they are the ones who are driving the politicians in these different directions to promote these, uh, the, these policies for their own reason. So beyond anything else, when you look at sort of that centralized enemy, that should raise an antenna that's like, wait a second, if the same people are basically for all of this and are supporting a system that essentially, at the very least, refuses to address them to the degree they need to be addressed, then doesn't that say something deeper about the connection between these issues at a grassroots level? And that's where socialists come in to point out that many of this is, if not endemic to the imperialist system, certainly only existing because of the imperatives of the imperialist system, which is simply globalized capitalism uh, controlled by you know a handful of countries to dominate all of the rest of the world. And I think when you look at it like that, that's the role that a socialist, and I think a socialist campaign with what we're trying to do is distill that into its essence, the connection between all of the different issues, the connection between the people who are doing it, and the identification of the common enemy that all have to be moved towards. That's what we've tried to raise as PSL, for instance, those of us involved in the movement for black lives, is that it's not really a struggle to create space, it's a struggle for power, that there are certain people who are pushing these policies, who are entrenched, who have to be removed. And I think that kind of understanding, that it's a struggle against a state power for a new type of society, is the key understanding that every Every single one of these movements, regardless of what you think about 90 percent of, of what else I'm saying, which I want to get to if I'm talking to you about socialism, if we don't start by identifying the central common enemy uh, that exists, the imperialist ruling class who are, you know, they're not hiding. This is not a conspiracy theory. They exist. They're out there. They don't even not acknowledge that they're in charge. But the fact that I mean, it's unbelievable, really, this is aside, that you can have a discourse in capitalist society about how politics are completely controlled by big money, mainstream discourse, and that has no impact on how the issue and the existence of a ruling class is covered. That's considered like a conspiracy theory. But the reality is it exists. It's there. They have power. Their power must be displaced with people power. And if we can bring that understanding into movements initially, I think that will get us going on the right road of starting to make these connections in a more serious way. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the reasons why, and I'm not trying to make this into a criticism of Sanders necessarily, but it's one of the reasons why the ruling class doesn't fear that conversation. In other words, you can have, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, finance capitalists, you know, the heads of J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and Citi and all of the rest of them. They could all be sitting in a room, you know, just as the, you know, the, the, the cabal that the conspiracy theorists or what have you, you know, envision in their, you know, in their in their fantasies. They could all be sitting in a room smoking cigars, you know, in a smoke-filled back room somewhere, plotting how to control the world and laughing about it. I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating here, but what I'm saying is they could sit there and they could laugh about the fact that people are, quote-unquote, having a conversation about money in politics, as if that is even remotely a threat to them. Even incremental reforms, such as what Sanders is talking about, really pose no real threat to them. It is when the conversation becomes about the ways in which they control the system, the systemic and endemic qualities of our political and economic systems, which are, of course, interconnected. When you get to that and that's really what socialism is about and what talking about socialism really does that's where you really pose a threat to them and that's why in my view they don't see Sanders as that much of a threat they see a growing movement of millions of people especially young people just entering the political scene who are 
totally and utterly uh, discrediting the current system. That's what they fear. Oh, I, I think for absolute certain. And in, in, in some ways, I think it's reflected by the way Clinton has treated Sanders, which even though clearly there's been an unbelievable collusion of factors in the media, the DNC, to hold Sanders down for the reasons I think it's not really about him. It's about, you know, you open that genie and all these people who yeah, are supporting him exactly. and who aren't, who are connected to them, yeah. what's going to happen. But even just the way that Clinton has been very, well, I vote for Sanders over Trump and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. I think that they fear the fact that there's clearly a radicalizing core of people. I mean, you look at 79,000, almost 80,000 people who signed the Bernie or bus thing, which is like, we'll write in Bernie or vote for the Green Party or whatever it may be. Uh, and I think they see people like that and they see movements like that and they see the idea that, well, you know, if we really go at this guy, these people could heavily radicalize in much larger numbers than we ever would have expected. And that can be a true threat to the system. And if anything else, I mean, maybe more than anything else, I think to some degree that speaks of the latent power that we have as organized social movements where I think a lot of times, and rightfully so, because I think in many ways we are still sort of in an era of counter-revolution after the fall of the USSR, where the right wing in most countries seems to be relatively ascendant. Imperialism still has a certain amount of hegemony. But I think we can't forget that I think the Occupy movement, I think the movement for Black Lives, some of these other movements that are out there, have shaken the confidence of the regime that they can stifle left-leaning, because, you know, like, whatever, right-leaning insurgencies, at the end of the day, not a huge problem. If you're for capitalism, there's a way that they can adapt to it. But the real issue is, when you have a left-leaning insurgency that's going to actually challenge capitalism, what do you do about that? And I think that we're in a stage where it's not as advanced the level of decay in the Democrats and the left-wing establishment as it is on the right, but where it really clearly the, the human material exists, I think there's quite a bit of fear on the ruling class of that erupting far beyond beyond Sanders or anything that he would even advocate to him. Absolutely. All right, let's take a break. Um, a lot more to touch on with you. Uh, Eugene Perrier is my guest. Once again, he is the vice presidential candidate on the PSL ticket. That's the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Follow him on Twitter at Eugene Perrier. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Put forth a vision, represent a school of thought. Grind it out with the others for that number one spot. I'm scared of reality. I'd rather just embrace it. No religious views, but that don't mean that I'm faithless. Based on rational grounds is in the people Socialism's devil, here's the starting of the sequel Far as I'm concerned, it should be common sense That our current way of life ain't really life to begin with Starting human history will be the very onslaught Of the revolution when this clash shit'll stop Or maybe I should say rather kicked in the high gear Capitalist fools will be running off in fear Ideas don't change the world alone, people have to do and with the people's enemies, our struggle must be ruthless. Beaten down, lied to, often feeling tired. But a single spark can start the entire uprising. I will never be subservient, trust in their process. Truly, it's played out as past being monstrous. First U.S. revolution was indeed progressive. But quickly, the star-spangled banner would prove reckless. I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist. That means I keep it militant. The Boss man's nemesis, rep the organizers, nine to five grinders, homeless in the downtrodden, true freedom fighters. 
I'm a socialist, more than just a theorist. That means I keep it militant. The boss man's nemesis. Rep the organizers, nine to five grinders. Yeah, in the town trying to. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Eugene Perrier. Um, you know, I agree with everything that you said just before the break um, in regards to, you know, the, the ruling class and how they really view and what they what they fear about this, uh, particularly the young generation, but really just the rise of uh, anti-capitalist sentiment. Now, here, in my view, is the second part of that fear that they have, and and the reason why they really needed to clamp down on this uh, this growing movement. And I think it's something that is too often ignored, and that is the fact that a lot of mainstream as well as um, you know alternative economists and experts in political economy and various other issues are talking about the not just the instability of the global economy the global capitalist system but many of them are saying the impending collapse or the impending you know depression on a scale far larger than what we saw in 2008 a a you know a cataclysmic economic um, you know disaster on the order of, you know, 1929 to 1931 being a very real, uh, having a very real potential here, considering all of the policies that have been enacted, quantitative easing and the bubble economy and neoliberalism and all of this having brought us to the brink. If that happens, as many are predicting, and I think many in the ruling establishment have even said at Davos and elsewhere in these uh, forums and at universities, if that happens, how are they going to prevent the upsurge of anti-capitalist sentiment? Because against that backdrop, that is where left radicalism, revolutionary socialism, communism, anarchism, all of these things, that's where that really flourishes. And so do you see an attempt to stem that tide as much as possible before a potential collapse? Yes, I think so, for certain. I think that without a doubt, there has to be some sort of, you know, uh, maybe prophylactic uh, attempt to do it. I mean, if you look at, there was an article in New York Times, maybe it was Politico, I don't know, one of them. You'll find it, uh, I'm sure the listeners to Counterpunch Radio are tech savvy, um, where they were talking about, well, what do the Sanders supporters, and by that they seem to really just mean the people in the Congressional Progressive Caucus and mainstream, large-scale, liberal and progressive groups, but be that as it may, what do these Sanders supporters want out of this campaign? And that was sort of the key piece, right, beyond the completely meaningless Democratic Party platform in which they want more left-wing positions. They were hoping to gain more leverage inside of the Congress, basically, uh, in terms of the priorities that they want to see pushed forward by the Democratic Conference in the House and the Caucus and the Senate, and if there was a Democratic president, the things they would like to see them push forward. So, I mean, and whether they're doing this consciously or unconsciously, I, I think that there are some people who really think, you know, they're doing the right thing and taking the stepping stone to something that's bigger and better. Uh, but be that as it may, whatever it is, clearly that can be seen and should be seen and understood as an attempt to find a way to have some sort of systemic outlet for this form of anger. I think that there's a flip side to that coin. I would urge every single person who hears this, go to justiceonline.org. Now that is the website of the Partnership for Civil Justice. And on there, they've created another site that's below that. I want to say it's bigbrotheramerica.org, but you can definitely get it at justiceonline.org with all the information they've revealed via FOIA about how the government, and it's not just the Occupy movement, but this is where they've gotten most of the documents, was heavily, heavily 
Occupy movement using the tools that they have created under the guise of national security around terrorism, the fusion centers which link together law enforcement, federal, local, state in an unbelievable way. And they were surveilling, in fact, the ATF. Who knows why the ATF is surveilling the Occupy movement? They found that not only were they surveilling, but then actually they determined that the people they were surveilling were 100% peaceful. They actually wrote a memo saying, well, this is why we have to keep surveilling them because we know they must be violent. There must be some secret, sinister you know, core behind there that we have to find. And they're not only doing this amongst themselves, they're sharing information about protest movements with private businesses and saying, well, these people are coming here and this is what they think, this is who they are. And I think we have to be very clear here. I mean, obviously in the United States, uh, the left recently has operated you know, more or less openly without any real serious repression or whatever. But I think we have to be 100% clear about the fact that a massive repressive apparatus on the point of view of surveillance and from the point of view of suppression, if you look at this militarized policing, has clearly, and you know, a little bit beyond that, if you want to look at the plans they have from Northcom and FEMA and others, clearly, clearly, the government is, is well prepared, uh, the deep state, as some would call it, for some sort of serious insurgency that threatens the, the, the stability of capitalism. I mean, they talk about the stability of the system and maintaining the stability of the system, continuity of government uh, uh, operations, as they're called in, in the natural disaster situation or a terrorist attack situation. All of it is designed uh, on stability. But when they say system, they mean capitalist imperialism. When they say continuity of government, well, just think about all the things that the government does from drone strikes to taxes. That's what they mean. They mean keeping the hegemony of the imperialist capitalist state at all costs, even in the worst possible cataclysm. So I'm not saying that it's impossible. Uh, every government that's ever been overthrown also was prepared to try to not be overthrown. But the reality is if we're saying that capitalism in and of itself is fatal to humanity, which I believe it is, uh, that we must replace it with a different system. We must understand beyond propaganda that this is a very serious game we're playing and that, in fact, the other side is taking it equally as seriously. And we have to be prepared, uh, uh, I think, for that kind of reality, too, beyond the fact that clearly ahead of time they're trying to cut us off at the past using stuff like, you know, Michelle Goldberg's article, for instance, about Bernie Sanders wanting to get rid of the CIA, which was on slate. So, you know, trying to, to find ways to cut us off at the past by making it seem impossible. But the reality is, is, I think the mainstream media interlocutors and political interlocutors now have less currency than they ever had with the, the, the vast majority of people, which is why I think they're less effective, which is why even Bernie Sanders, who was not super radical, but who they were trying to stop, uh, early on by saying, oh, this is totally unrealistic. That was clearly not really super effective. What was more effective was to use the machinery of the state to disenfranchise voters and things like that uh, to hold him back. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I mean, one of the things that I brought up, I think it was, what was that, two weeks ago in the conversation with Paul Street. You guys can check that out. I want to say it was episode 37, I believe. Um, you know, talking about this sort of the the apparatus that already exists and the potential for a a a real fascist style state to emerge you know it's one of those things that a lot of people you know scaremonger about but i mean if you think about the kind of movement that is galvanized around donald trump for example or if you think about the potential of global war under hillary clinton with her belligerent policies towards russia her belligerent policies vis-a-vis south china sea and china her belligerent 
belligerent policies in the Middle East and the blundering that that could lead to a real global conflict. If you consider that and you consider the potential for abrupt climate change and you consider the potential for millions upon millions of refugees and you consider the potential of an economic collapse and all of these factors brought together, you can see the very clear and present danger that we face of a, not just a repressive apparatus, but an outright fascist police state style apparatus which uh, for which the architecture and infrastructure is already very much in place, as you mentioned, from surveillance to uh, prisons and, and, and all of the rest of that and, and the policies and all of that. With all of that being said, I think that that is really something that needs to be addressed, not in a conspiratorial way, but in a very practical and pragmatic and revolutionary sense. If you're working for revolutionary change, you better be prepared for the most vicious forms of repression imaginable. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in fact, it would just not even be logical. I mean, just look at it from the other side and look at how much wealth and power all these people have accumulated. I mean, what sort of sense would it make for them to just give it up? Uh, the example I always give is the Civil War in America, where, you know, the, the sort of moderate-ish forces uh, led by Lincoln and the Republican Party, they were more or less bending over backwards to say to the slave owners, like, we're not going to end slavery. We're not going to take your slaves away. You can keep doing your thing. You just basically got to stay where you're at. Uh, and so even the idea that, that slavery could expire like a generation or two generations in the future uh, in Brazil, for instance, slavery wasn't officially abolished in the 1890s. Even that was too much for them. And so they decided to just, you know, secede from the United States and wage an unbelievably destructive war, even though they were not actually threatened with losing any of their property in the next, you know, 100 years. So I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting uh, uh, reality, I think, that exists in the mentality of those with wealth and power. And where they kind of see it is, well, you know, it's too much of a slippery slope. You start here, where does it end up going? And I think that when you look at it like that, it's only logical that we would have to think about that and have to factor that in and also just note the fact that, you know, the thing about, you know, fascism, as people look at it, is it's not just hatred that drives it. It's also dysfunction. Obviously, hatred is huge, and we have a huge amount of uh, hatred being whipped up against immigrants and Muslims, and that's what I think has brought people's attention to it. But, you know, it's also the dysfunctionality of a capitalist system in a, in a Weimar Germany-type era, an interwar Europe-type area, uh, and, and other sort of... I hate to use this term, but other areas where quote-unquote authoritarian regimes have, have arisen, you know, when there's a certain desire to cut through all the red tape and try to improve people's lives, uh, often at the expense of sections of the, uh, of the existing capitalist imperialist class, then that also raises it. A friend of mine was telling me the other day how they were talking with a friend of theirs who's like a firefighter who said to them, uh, very Roman fashion. Couldn't we just have a dictator for like two years just to clean up all of this? And I think that there's more of that. Just a couple of years ago, I think 29% of people or something like that said that they would support a coup under certain circumstances. And that's before uh, everything that's happened since then. And I think of sort of maybe rising sense of political instability. So I think at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of what people want is just to have their basic everyday problem solved and that people can also take advantage of that in a major, major way if they're willing to sort of cut out, and this is certainly what Hitler was willing to do, when they were willing to cut out sections of the capitalist class to, uh, while in, you know, elevating others in order to try to find a way to create a base by meeting people's basic economic problems because of the intense dysfunction that was existing in Germany at that time. And I think that's the thing that the left, we have to recognize in a big way, 
is that that is one of our strengths, is that a lot of what we're talking about is this is the true way where everyone can actually be thinking about how do we have our basic needs met, and more than that, how do we live in a way that's sustainable with the planet, sustainable for our lives? How do we not just get up every day and survive, but really start to live? I mean, that really is the message, the historical message and the current message of the left at large and certainly of the socialist left. And I think the, the, the beauty of socialism as an ideology of understanding the process by which something like that has to happen, that it's not, it isn't all overnight, it isn't all pie in the sky, but that the key thing is to start to reorganize things so that we can move towards that goal. And I think it's a great time to be presenting that counter image in a strange way, as strange as it seems, is the more extreme these right-wing individuals get and the larger they are, I think the better it is in terms of the contrast that we're able to draw, and it means that it's a tough fight, it's a hard fight, but I think it's one where the question, the basic question, of not how do we basically deal with the problem, but how do we solve the problem is on the agenda. And when that question is on the agenda, that's when I think we as socialists, as the left, have a chance to thrive. That's right. And it's not only it's it's not only how do we solve problems, because, of course, that's a very constructive way of presenting it. But another way of presenting in many ways the same sentiment is how do we defend ourselves? How do we defend our people? How do we defend the the things that we believe are rights, rights to clean drinking water, rights to health care, right to education, right to a decent living, all of these things that, that I think anybody of the left should, in my view, believe to be rights. How do we defend them? And how do we defend ourselves? How do we defend our people from, you know, in this country, for instance, instance, in in the United States, a potential rising, uh, deeply reactionary, racist, and and dare I say fascist right wing that is increasingly being mobilized, increasingly organized. But, and this is where I want to segue into another point, defense, defense of our people, quote unquote, our people, does not end at the borders of the United States. Our people are all oppressed people in the world, okay? An international view view of this question I think is critical and that's another place where socialism and 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 socialist uh, uh, parties and socialist movements and socialists as individuals really have to play a fundamental role and this is one of the glaring failures of Sanders one of the glaring failures of so-called progressive movements and progressive uh, uh, organizations in the United States is this complete blind spot to the issue of imperialism. And that's really, I think, something that needs to be addressed. You know, so you see Sanders making statements about, you know, well, okay, sure, I support Obama's drone program. I I support having a kill list under various circumstances. I support special forces being deployed in this country and that country and bombs being dropped from the sky. I support Saudi Arabia and their continued war in Yemen. You know, all of these issues, they're not simply individual mistakes that Sanders makes. They're is a mindset about imperialism and what imperialism means and how the military industrial complex should function that I think is really one of the weakest spots of so-called progressivism in the United States and it's one of the key focal points of any socialist movement is addressing that, undermining that and dismantling that and there are very few people in my view other than socialists and various other left radicals that really talk about that and really understand it. No, I think you're uh, completely correct. I mean, it's it's completely reprehensible. I, and I think, in, honestly, in some ways, 
it's a little bit embarrassing that, you know, you could have someone like Rand Paul was more outspoken on some of these issues than yeah. anyone in the Democratic yes. primary. I mean, it really is, is unbelievable. And I think what people have to, to recognize and, and really understand, the wealth of the so-called first world is only really able to exist because of the first world's domination of the third world. I mean, there's so much conversation about jobs leaving America in this election. Well, why did they leave in the first place? Because the corporations were trying to find the cheapest possible way to exploit people to increase their profit margins. And at the end of the day, if we're talking about what it means to live sustainably from an environmental perspective, that is clearly a global conversation where we can't be talking about that. But beyond anything else, the global labor and supply chain is completely and totally interlinked. Capital moves completely freely across borders and doesn't even really think about it. In fact, usually they only think about it when it's about how do they work less taxes uh, somehow through some inversion scheme. So at the end of the day, it's really only at the, the grassroots level on the left, I think, where there's any in of these forces that you could call maybe broadly social democratic, like Sanders, like the unions, uh, who sometimes through the AFL-CIO are directly complicit in imperialist activities. Exactly. It's really only in that space where this is somehow ignored and where there's some sort of pristine national uh, existence whereby, you know, you can have every single thing you want here in America uh, as long as, you know, you basically continue the system abroad. And, you know, perhaps in some ways that's true. But I think beyond that, the reality is, is it's completely and utterly destructive. And it completely denies that people have a greater interest allying with people in a similar situation as them, that basically all they can do is get up every day and go to some job where someone else pays them uh, just to survive, that there's more of those type of people all around the world whose basic interest, which is to have all of the the, the wealth, the material, human, whatever, uh, being used to meet people's basic needs and democratically decided wants, uh, that that is a powerful connection that we cannot lose. That, in fact, the only reason we're able to live the way we do is because we have this terrible imperialist system. And so, in fact, you know, the entire existence of the first world is complicit in the oppression of the third world. And if we want to have any sort of serious uh, conversation about how we move beyond that, we have to move beyond the national conversation to the fact that it's a transnational imperialist ruling class, increasingly transnational, I should say, uh, that is viewing sort of the working class and oppressed people in an increasingly transnational way of who they have to oppress by and large. And I think that for sure, this is an issue where socialists have perhaps maybe always and other radicals been the core of raising this critique of the policies of imperialism. I think it's unbelievably reprehensible for people to essentially just say, well, I don't really care if someone gets killed in a drone strike in Pakistan as long as there's free health care in America. I mean, well, we and, could talk for an hour just about that. <laughs> well, uh, exactly. But it's not just that. You know, that's the thing is you're totally right. But Look, it's not just an inability to, you know, uh, to talk about it or, or to, you know, prioritize. It's the refusal to make the connection that the two are inextricably linked. That is the problem with somebody like a Sanders. And again, I'm not trying to take this whole episode to shit all over Sanders. It's not my intention. Sure. You know, I, I, what I, what I mean to say is when, when Bernie Sanders stands there and talks about, you know, everyone should have the right to go to college without having to pay for it, without being saddled with debt. 
I, of course, agree with that. We, we should be able to have universal health care. I, of course, agree with that. But if you're going to make all of these points without saying that we need to dismantle the $800 billion a year monster that is visiting mm-hmm. death and destruction upon all of these people all over the world, then you, you're not only distorting the reality of the issue, in many ways you're working against the interests that I think the left is supposed to be fighting for. We're supposed to make these connections and to show how these things are linked, how capitalist exploitation in the United States is directly linked to the exploitation in the global south, in the third world, and how the war machine fits into all of that. If you don't make those connections, in my view, you're not really leading the left. No, I agree. I mean, the reality is imperialism is a worldwide system that, in fact, can only exist because it creates a million different divisions between the people at the level below the ruling class, whether they be national religions, ethnic, religious, whatever it may be. Uh, You know, there's that uh, Boots Riley uh, lyric from a while ago, Boots Riley of the Crew, that I always really like when he's talking about capitalism and religion. And he said uh, they control the Pope, the Holy Rollers, and the Ayatollahs. And I think that to a certain degree, you know, that kind of consciousness is one that we have to sort of bring, uh, despite there's some contradictions in that, too. But I think it's a level that we have to bring of understanding that we have to bring to people is that really the only reason imperialism can exist as a worldwide system is it's, you know, created and it's constituent of all of these different sort of conflicts and things like that that keep people from seeing the basic reality is that there really is zero reason why everyone on the planet Earth can't have their basic needs and more met relatively easily if it's well organized. But the only thing that stands in the way of that is that some people want way, 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 way more than other people and will do anything to keep it. I mean, that's really sort of the essence of of why you have a state in capitalism. And so ultimately, until we recognize that fact, I think it's going to be very difficult to really advance you know, on a practical level, because there's, you know, just all sorts of things that people are going to be going up against from a divisive standpoint, but then on a just sort of an ideological moral level of what it is, what is our actual goal? What are we really trying to do? I mean, I agree with you 100%. I mean, even if we could have free health care in an $800 billion military machine, I mean, is that really, you know, what it means to have a better world? I mean, even these forces like Sanders and others will say we need a better world. Well, okay, great. What does that mean, though? Yeah. And is it a better world just for people who are, you know, uh, born under the red, white and blue? I mean, come on. It's it's mm-hmm. it, it's ridiculous. Now, um, we're running out of time and I want to touch on something else because, you know, we we're agreeing here on all of these points. Obviously, we're pretty aligned politically here. But there is another question that I think really has to be addressed. In many ways, it is the elephant in the room when it comes to socialism and that uh, in the West, particularly, of course. Uh, and that is the question of whether or not there is something that we could actually call a quote-unquote socialist movement. Now, what I mean to say is that do... Do we have a movement for socialism on the left, or do we merely have an ideal ideology to which many factions adhere? The sort of the factional question, the sectarianism that we've seen on the left is, of course, not unique to the United States. It is it is an issue on the left from time immemorial, essentially. But I think considering the implications of what we're talking about here, considering these impending global crises that we're facing, can the left and can the socialist uh, camp really afford that kind of continued divisive landscape? I mean, you know, just for instance, your party, PSL, is the, you know, as people 
probably know or people who know PSL know is the product of a split of a uh, of a previous party that it was a part of. We have met, I mean, countless examples of splits and splits among splits and and so forth that has, in many ways, I think, factionalized the left to a degree where I I mean, I'm left asking the question. Is there a socialist movement first and foremost? And if not, really, what do we need to do in order to create that? Because in my view, unity around all of these issues that we're talking about is perhaps the only way to address or to confront these forces that are arrayed against us. Yeah, well, I agree with you 100%. I think primarily what we have right now is a collection of socialist groups um, that you know, in different configurations have limited amounts of collaboration. And I think, you know, sectarianism and things like that are a problem around the world, but I think America is uniquely, uh, I I don't even really know why. I mean, I've heard a lot of different points, but I think America has been uniquely uh, centered around this sort of reality where there's just so many splits and splinters and things like that. I think there's reasons you can explain it. I think that beyond anything else in this stage in the game, you're 100% right. We have to reach more unity. I think that as, as socialists and, and communists, and I would also say this to anarchists and other radicals, you know. Uh, you know yeah, let's not forget. Know, let's not green. forget the anarchists. I, I want to stress that point. I know I got a lot of anarchist friends, uh, you know, associated with counterpunch and whatever. When we're talking about socialism, we're not saying to the exclusion of other uh, formations mm-hmm. on the left. Yeah, I, I actually think that we're in sort of more of a first international moment uh, than, a, than a third in terms of what we're trying to do with, with broad unity, where, you know, basically the first international, which had socialists, anarchists, other radicals, uh, it came together really around one basic thing, which was a way to try to unite workers across borders to prevent uh, the bosses in various European countries from exploiting uh, immigrant labor to lower wages. And sort of on that basic principle, we're able to erect, at least for some years, of course, it didn't work forever, uh, some sort of broad unity amongst a large frame of radical forces that could actually be something that was fearful uh, to the capitalist classes and the ruling classes, of course. And uh, obviously, the example of the Paris Commune was something that was very uh, uh, scary to them in terms of that that ability to unify the quote-unquote communists, which at that time included people we might consider of differing ideologies, but maybe that's the point. Um, and even, you know, in Reconstruction, South Carolina, the legislature there, which, you know, was progressive, uh, and probably maybe the most progressive of the black Reconstruction governments, but it wasn't hard on communists. But even they started to get tarred with this brush of being these these communards, and that image of the Paris Commune was one that re- really struck complete fear into the the hearts of the the, the ruling classes in the West and the United States of that day, uh, the imperialism of that day. And I think that we have to look to how do we build a similar sort of broad unity. We're not going to agree on everything right now, and that can be okay. Some things, obviously, are going to be cardinal lines, but there's a lot of things. I mean, listen, what happened in 1930-something, it doesn't mean that it's not important, but if that's like the 100% dividing line about whether or not we can ever talk or, you know, come within contact of each other, then we're in a big, we have a big problem. Uh, I think that you know, issues that are around uh, the, the former socialist countries, I mean, those are also extremely important. But I think it's very important to recognize that sometimes they should not be raised to the level of complete and total 
isolation from each other and that, in fact, they're probably more relevant in some ways about how we relate to current issues, whereby I think by rooting ourselves in that current reality, uh, we can actually find points of unity as opposed to sort of trying to read something into it, um, which I think, for example, with Syria is a lot of what happens. People trying to sort of read back some difference from 30 years ago that was, you know, a key dividing line at that time that doesn't need to be now. But I think that for sure, for sure, if this is not a big imperative, and this is why, and, and folks can take a look on our, our website, our votepsl.org, our campaign website, we engaged in the whole Battle of New York newspaper effort, which was sort of a limited intervention at the last second of the New York primary around some of those issues, trying to affect some of those people who were, were voting and push them. That was not just us. In fact, it wasn't even initiated by us, but where we were working with some independent radicals, communists and others. And I think that, you know, looking for whatever those points are, whether they be small like that, relatively small or much more significant and much more larger, we have to be looking for how we find points of unity. We have to be working with each other, talking to each other, trying to use our various uh, institutional bases to the extent we have them to promote each other. And I think we have to just start that dialogue where even if we're disagreeing, at least we're disagreeing under some sort of unified framework uh, to move forward. I think that the level of sectarianism that has existed on the left in America um, and internationally to a lesser extent will, will be the key stumbling block to success in a moment of great uh, promise if we, if we just don't take it much more seriously. I totally agree. All right. Uh, final comments. I just want to I, I want to give you a chance to tell people about your campaign, uh, what PSL is doing, how they can get involved, where they should go. So do your thing. Sure. Well, I'll just say it basically like this. You know, from the point of view of what we're trying to do with this PSL campaign is we're trying to talk about you know, what does it really mean to have a new system and how does that play into the debates we're having right now? Are we for free health care? Yes, we are for free health care. You might say, oh, well, isn't Sanders for free health care? But think about it like this. I mean, what are you going to do with the tens of billions of people in the insurance industry that work there, uh, which obviously will start to be gutted if you have a growing free health care system? What about the oppressed communities where they don't just need free health care, but they need much more expanded access to health care, more doctors, more nurses? How do you have a serious conversation about what does it take to not only make health care free, but to actually make it work in a way where when you have millions of people taken out of a predatory industry, how do you put them back into the, to, to the uh, society in a way where it's not predatory, but it's helpful and where it doesn't actually destroy their living standards and throw them out on the street? How do you do it when you need more doctors, more nurses, more medical schools, more hospitals, more clinics, uh, and, the, and the knock-on effects start to become so great that in the, in the context of capitalism, the only thing you can say is, well, that costs too much money. And what we want to start to say is that these things don't cost too much. It's that we conceive of them in the wrong way. And that socialism is an entirely different system, not just deep reforms, not just higher taxes on rich people to have nicer things, but it's an entirely different systemic structure that's more democratic, that where people have power in their workplace, in their communities, not just going to the ballot box every four years, where people can recall people when Whenever they want, much more easily, with devolved powers into communities, not necessarily uh, as highly. Uh, I mean, it is centralized in a way, but in a totally different way. Maybe a decentralized democracy, but a more centralized economy, and where goods and services. And the, the, the whole desire and the things we do can be used first and foremost to meet ba people's basic needs. And a lot of needs are sort of uh, really based off of what we can actually produce. I mean, some people would call them wants, but those democratically established wants. Once we know everything that we have to work with, 
once we know everything that what we people need, then we can work that out so that everything, everyone gets everything they need and we can do more on top of that. A totally different system, a way of living in harmony with each other and in harmony with the planet where everyone has a living standard that can really be called living. That's what it is. And if you want to turn, learn more about what we're doing, check us out at votepsl.org, votepsl.org, or you can check out our, our PSL news page. We're putting up a lot of different things at liberationnews.org. That's liberationnews.org. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, excellent information, excellent discussion. I urge everyone to get involved in some way. Again, I mean, the Sanders thing, it seems to be winding down. I mean, I understand they're going to continue, but it does seem to be winding down. What is the movement building action that we are engaging in? How are we doing this? Eugene just outlined a lot of different uh, uh, questions that need to be addressed. You can get in touch with him. You can you can follow PSL. You can get in touch with any uh, of the organizations that you feel most uh, comfortable with because I do think uh, just as what we were saying there at the end of the conversation, unity and coming together uh, around these fundamental questions, I think, is really the way forward. So, again, I want to thank you for coming on the show, Eugene. Follow Eugene Perrier on Twitter at Eugene Perrier. That's E-U-G-E-N-E. P-U-R-Y-E-A-R, Eugene Perrier on Twitter, uh, VP candidate for PSL. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for so much, and I hope everyone becomes a CounterPunch subscriber as well. Thanks again, listeners. Speak to you next week.